for this occasion to worship together. And we ask that uh, as we share from your word this morning that you would speak to our hearts. Use, use my voice. Use uh, this opportunity to draw us closer to you. And we thank you for the way that you work and are at work through your word. And we ask for your blessing and for you to touch and change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have been studying the book of Acts. Uh, it has been our companion in the last few weeks and months as we as a church have come to life, we've grown, we've, we've even moved locations. Uh, we've had some, some celebrations of life in our congregation. So we're, we're enjoying, I think, seeing the parallel from the book of Acts and how God is at work here in our own church. And it's a blessing. We've learned, though, that as we've studied the book of Acts, that these early Christians, they didn't just go to church. And instead, they learned to become the church. Big difference between going to church and becoming the church. I think we're experiencing that even now. Each week, we've looked at how they did it, how they would come together, they would, they would pray together, and they would spend a lot of time praying and gain strength from, from that dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we looked at how they handled persecution. It actually led us to, to our own interest, uh, though it be natural from our international community, to think about others in the world who face different kinds of persecution. But we see how the early church did it, how they lived and died with hope and peace. And we looked at how they cared for each other, how they met each other's needs, how they, they were attuned, how they were attentive to each other's lives. And that encourages us and inspires us, I think, to get to know each other a little bit and pay attention. And so this morning, we're going to look at one more way the early church grew and had the impact in the world that we know even today. In fact, I believe that this piece, that Acts chapter 6, is a significant, maybe even the most significant turning point in the life of the early church. God was at work in awesome ways. The ministry was, was expanding and things were happening. People were coming, but, here's the big B word, but, it could no longer be done by just a few apostles. The work of the church needed to be put into the hands of everybody. Big difference here. This was God's plan for the church. And, and we see what happened, and it is still God's plan for the church today. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 6. Uh, just the first seven verses we're going to look at this morning. And I'm going to read, I'm actually going to read from the New International Version uh, this morning. If you have the English Standard Version, it's okay. The, the significant change is that in verse 3 he addresses everybody. So NIV says brothers and sisters. Uh, and I think that's important. So from Acts chapter 6 verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, 
it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The early church was growing and expanding, and Acts, tell, Acts chapter 6 tells the story of, of how that change happened. It actually begins with the phrase, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, and then ends by saying, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So in between these phrases of, of growth, in between these two sentences that are almost the same, there was a challenge that threatened the very life of the early church. It is actually a challenge that has threatened the church ever since. You see, most churches want to grow. It, it is a natural thing. When you know Jesus, you want to share, you want to see your community enjoy and, and grow because others experience the joy of Jesus. Most churches want to grow. We want to make a difference in the kingdom. I mean, we want to make a difference in Debertson and Hungary and throughout the world. We want our numbers to increase. We want to fill this space. We want to knock out that wall. We want to be so big we have to find another space. And that's good to want that. But as soon as the church we love and we want it to grow starts to grow, we feel tension. Yeah. Because growth means change and Nobody, we don't always like change. What do they say? Only babies like a change? And maybe that's not even true because they cry about it. Have you heard that? Don't worry about it. This is the same tension that we see in the life of the early church. The book of Acts tells us that there were two problems the church was facing as a result. The first problem was a division problem. I'm not talking about math, a math problem. It was difference of opinion. It was uh, uh, two sides uh, of, a, of a coin. It was, uh, I wouldn't even hate to say this, but maybe political differences. Uh, because there were Greek-speaking Jews in the church and there were Aramaic-speaking Jews in the church. And the Greek Jews didn't quite understand the customs and traditions of the Hebraic Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and vice versa. They were two different cultural groups that made up this church. And so... There were cultural differences that they didn't quite understand. They didn't quite get to the bottom. And as a result, the widows were being overlooked. And that's often the problem. When, when people don't understand each other, somebody is overlooked. Somebody is left out. And in this case, uh, in the context of the church, it was common for widows to move to Jerusalem in, in the Hebraic context, in the Jewish tradition, because... You know, if you're a widow and you're, you're looking at the end of your life, you want to be sort of in the Holy Land. 
So you, you move to holy, the Holy Land, and then it becomes the responsibility of the synagogue to take care of you. Well, this was happening not only to the Jewish widows, but also to the Jewish widows who had become Christian, and so they were Christian widows. And so the responsibility fell on the Christian church to take care of the widows who had moved to Jerusalem. But here, they were being neglected. But this, thing, this kind of thing happens in churches these days. I don't know if we have widows among us or not, but sometimes it happens in other ways. Sometimes it happens along racial lines. Certain racial groups are, are overlooked. Or sometimes it happens among generational lines. The older or the younger groups, they get left behind. Or sometimes certain members are given preferences and special treatment. And, and it does happen, unfortunately. And usually, the way most people handle it is that they just go find another church. They pull out the church shopping card. You know, the, you, know you got a spar card, right? You get, you, anybody got a spar card? You should, because you get good coupons. But it's, it's the church shopping card, and we pull it out. We don't talk about it much, but we keep it in our pocket sometimes, and when things get difficult in our church, we pull out that. We, we begin to do a little church shopping, like we would for the price of milk at the grocery store. Ooh, this church has got a little easier, a little few easier expectations here. It's a, this church has a lot of sales, a lot of good coffee, comfortable seats, uh, you know. This church, this church feeds me what I want to hear, meets my perceived needs. Notice perceived needs. And, and, and so some, for some, finding the right church is like choosing a grocery store. Where can I get the best deal, the, the best product at the cheapest price? And, and this is what happens in a lot of places in the world today. Thankfully, this did not happen in the early church. They, they weren't church consumers. They didn't go church shopping. They didn't have a church shopping card because there weren't a lot of churches to choose from. They were pretty much stuck with the one church that they had. And you know what? It turned out to be a good thing because it forced them to find resolution in relationships. It forced them to grow closer to each other, to understand each other more deeply, to invest in each other more completely. And so here in verse 2, we see exactly how it happened. It said, it says, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together. The key word here is together. This phrase says so much about how to solve differences, how to find resolution, how to work together. In fact, we used it there, together. Whenever differences come into play, we have to come together and listen and understand each other. We have to serve together. And that's what the early church did. They came together and they found the joy of unity, which turns out to be a good thing because unity is really important to Jesus. In fact, we know that unity is so important to Jesus that the one thing that was on his mind moments and hours before his own arrest and crucifixion was unity for the church. In John chapter 17, that beautiful prayer, which I call the Lord's Prayer because Jesus prays it. He prays this prayer. In the, in the climax of this prayer, he prays. What does he pray for? He doesn't pray for the church to have success. He doesn't pray for bigger buildings. He doesn't pray for that the church would solve world hunger. He doesn't pray that. He prays that the church would be one. 
He prays. He says in John chapter 17, Father, I pray that they can be one as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they can also be one in us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. Just one thing. He prayed they would be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus is passionate about unity. And do you know why? Because unity creates belief. How will the world know and believe in Jesus? Not if we do more outreach. Not if we bring world peace. Not if our theology is better. Not if we know the Bible frontwards and backwards. But only if we come together in unity and love one another focused on Christ. Now those things are important that I mentioned. But unity is the key. The challenge of division, as we read about it in Acts chapter 6, was solved by coming together. And then there was another problem. Another problem they had to solve. It was a serving problem. There was too much work to be done. Ever felt like that? <laughs> How many areas of life can we say that, right? There's too much work to be done. If you're in school, you know exactly what that means. The church had to find another way to, to get it done. They could no longer depend on a few people to do the work. The apostles, they had to give away the ministry. Look at verse 2. It says, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. This waiting on tables was a way of serving the widows. It's not, it's not a restaurant where they're serving. It's not that. They're serving the widows. They're taking care of the needy. The apostles realized that they couldn't meet everyone's needs. In fact, they shouldn't even try. It wasn't because their needs weren't important. It wasn't because the 12 were super apostles or above waiting on the widows and distributing food. In fact, I think they probably found it very satisfying to wait. I, I've done that kind of ministry, and I love it because you can help somebody and you get instant feedback. I mean, you might even get a hug. Uh, you, get, you get affirmation. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, John. Thank you, whoever. It, it's, it's, it's kind of instant. There is joy in doing that. So I don't think that they were, were above that. And, and I, but, but what they came to realize is that by trying to do it all themselves, they were failing at it, first of all. They couldn't do it all. Secondly, they were neglecting their primary responsibilities. They were called and gifted to do something else. And because they were doing all of this other ministry, they were neglecting studying of the word and the preaching, the teaching, the praying. And not only that, and most significantly, this was the problem. They were depriving other members of the opportunity to serve. Their, over, uh, their overzealousness, their sacrificial nature, I'll do it, uh, was keeping people out of the joy of kingdom work. So they decided to share the work of ministry with others. Brothers and sisters, they said, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This is so important. Just this, these couple little verses here, we can, we can blow by that, but we miss something very significant if we do. If you go back and read and think about Acts chapter 2 through 5. We're not going to read it this morning. Acts chapter 2 through 5. You will see all sorts of wonderful things 
happening in the life of the early church. All the things we've talked about, the preaching, the miracles, the praying, the outreach, the ministry. It was a great church. The only problem was is that the apostles were doing it all. I mean, the, the apostles preached, the apostles healed, the apostles handed out the money. It's Peter this and John that and Peter this and John that in every chapter. But in Acts chapter 6, something changes. The game changes with the help of the congregation. This is where I get excited. The apostles choose seven people to take responsibility, to care for the widows and other such practical needs. And then in symbolic act of empowerment, they lay hands on them. They commission them for ministry. It was a decision that would forever change the life of the church and still today it changes us. From now on, ministry would be done in the hands of the people, all people of the church. We begin, we'll begin to read about this in the next few weeks. All kinds of people. And in this same chapter, Stephen begins to preach. Uh, Philip becomes an evangelist. And then in chapter 9, we get a, a preview on this guy named Saul who, psst, I'll tell you a secret, he later becomes Paul. <laughs> and then in chapter 9, later, other surprising things happen. We, women are allowed to do ministry. Dorcas, the seamstress, to be followed by Lydia, the church planter, and Priscilla, the teacher, and Philip's daughters who prophesied. Wow! It was the beginning of a brand new day for the church in which ministry would be placed in the hands of ordinary men and women who had been called and gifted by God to do His work in the world. And look what happened as a result. It says in verse 7, So the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This was an important moment in the life of the church because what they did here is crucial to even our own growth today. If you look at Acts chapter 6 closely, you'll notice that the leaders didn't just ask for volunteers. That they, they didn't just choose seven warm bodies who could fill those positions. Instead, they prayerfully and carefully chose. They discerned God's work and God's way in it. They chose men who were empowered by the Spirit, who were called and gifted to do the task at hand. And notice how they all had Greek names? Well, that's interesting in a Greek and Jewish congregation. Why did they all have Greek names? Because they could relate to the Greek believers where the whole, they, they were feeling left out. The early church was prayerful about this. They were careful about this, about placing members in, members in ministry. They were looking for people with good reputation, a good track record, a good sense of a, ability to do so, who were full of spirit and wisdom. They were looking for leadership, but they were doing it carefully and prayerfully. This is so important for churches today. Because there is a place for everybody to serve. And I've, had, I've served on enough nominating committees where you always get that one person, you call them the warm, warm body person. And they start, they pull out the church directory, the memory, and they think, oh, let's just go through everybody list. Well, this one's alive still. Maybe they can do it. That's not the way to do it. You start putting people in church positions without prayer, prayerfully and carefully considering it, failure and disappointment will be the result. 
one pastor shares about a, a sign that he, he read as he's taking his family to ride horses. He goes to the, to the stable, to the barn, and he sees this sign on the way that reminds him of the church, how sometimes we encourage people in the wrong way. The sign read, For those who like to ride fast, we have fast horses. For those who like to ride slow, we have slow horses. And for those who have never ridden horses before, we have horses that have never been ridden. I don't know what you know about horses, but it's not a good idea. It's not. I, I can tell you stories about that because we had, I had 30 head of horses, 30 horses at one time growing up. Uh, churches must be careful and prayerful about encouraging members in the right way. So there must be prayer. Here's, here's four things. Real quick, there must be prayer. This is the first and most important thing. What does God want? Who does God want? We have to pray for this. We have to discern God's, God's leading, God's work. And then there must be the right character. The person must, must have a good reputation. They must have exp some experience in it in some way or a giftedness toward it. It's necessary for the ministry. And thirdly, there must be good communication. What, what I mean by that is we must know each other. We spend a little bit of time, and sometimes our, our games and our, our tactics are a little silly with get to know you. Who in this room, you know, likes cappuccino? And you've got to go find a person on the list. And who, who speaks several languages? We've played all those games. But those games are actually important because we need to know each other, which means we've got to spend time with each other. We get to spend time with each other take each other out for coffee, find out how many languages we actually do know, or what is our experience, or how do we like our coffee, or not like coffee, instead we like tea. I mean, those things are actually important. We have to know each other, how we are gifted, what our passions are, what our experiences are. We, we need to know that. And so I would say if you're, if you're a church, look around, do you know everybody in, in this church? And if you're a church leader, do you know the people in your congregation? And then finally, there must be trust. When someone is encouraged and empowered in ministry, they have to be trusted. They have to be given the tools and the training and respect necessary to do the ministry. So there's four things that really help us make sure that people who like to ride fast are on the fast horses. <laughs> when this happens, the church becomes a body of believers that powerfully changes the world. I believe it. And I have found personally that for me, even me personally, the greatest joys I've experienced in life have been in ways that I've been called to serve. You will find no greater joy in life than the, the opportunity and the privilege of being on mission, serving with Christ in the way that he wants you to serve. Seek that, desire that, look for that. And the Bible says when that happens, you actually become a priest. That's right. I'm a Baptist pastor telling you that you are priests. What's crazy about that? Actually, it's not that crazy because the Bible says it, not me. Do you know you are actually a priest? I mean, I don't see too many callers today. and I don't know how many of you went to seminary for theological training, but you know what? That doesn't even matter. You are a priest. Some of you are like, eh, I don't know about that. You know, and if you're in the States, you go visit somebody in the hospital, they actually have a little perk for priests. It says clergy parking. And so you can drive your car and you can get a close parking spot at the hospital. I, I would tell people we're not in the States, but if, you were, if we were in the States, I'd say, guess what? You can go park in that spot. No, don't. <laughs> 
The book of 1 Peter says it best. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, in the Old Testament, it was the priests who took care of the poor. It was the priests who received the offerings. It was the priests who were, were responsible for the work of the ministry. But now, through the Holy Spirit, every person is a priest in this way. Every member a minister. And so, the watching world took notice. They began to notice this priestly spirit. They noticed that it wasn't just the, the official priest. It was everybody a priest taking care of each other. And they did so. This was the priesthood of all believers. They did so because these early Christians recognized that they saw Jesus as the high priest. In fact, Jesus said it this way, I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus serves us. He served us. He served those disciples. And so we serve each other in the same way. When you live in relationship with Jesus, you are compelled to serve like he did. No one has to force you into it. Nobody has to call you on the phone and beg for you. Oh, we need help in the children's ministry. Please, please, please. I'm going to call you tomorrow, too. <laughs> you don't need that. You don't need to be manipulated because you are compelled to use your gifts and abilities to serve him. You do it because you have the heart of Jesus. And that's where you find the joy. That's where abundant life is found. If, and if you don't have the joy, then you don't know Jesus or you aren't serving Jesus. Because when you have it, when you find it, watch out. When you serve Jesus, you will find that ministry is an awesome joy. <laughs> Instead of exhausting you, it energizes you. Instead of burnout, you experience blessing. You say, it's a privilege. It's a joy to serve. Sometimes you can see that in people. And sometimes you can tell the difference between somebody who serves out of guilt or somebody who serves out of joy. Uh, I'll never forget a man by the name of Dwayne. He was a 78-year-old deacon in the first church I served in Appleton, Wisconsin. Dwayne was a model for me of servanthood. He was an amazing man at the age of 78. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was the church treasurer. He would go visit the shut-ins every week and take them communion. But the thing I really, that really caught my attention was that he was the one who provided heat for the church in the winter. Now, this was Wisconsin. And so think about how cold it is today and, and then take maybe 10 degrees Celsius away from that. That's Wisconsin. <laughs> In, in the winter, Wisconsin was super cold. And, and so we had this church building, and we had a heating system that was not like this, uh, not electric. It was a, a boiler system, so it was hot water. So you'd have a gas boiler, it would boil, the, and everything would be run by steam. We have those here, actually. Probably you, you do, too. But the problem was that our system had a leak in it. And so we couldn't, we couldn't afford to run it all week long. And so on... On Sunday after church, we would drain all the water out of the system. And so it would take about two or three hours to do that. So Dwayne would come after church, after everybody went home, 
and he would unplug the boiler system and let all the water drain out. So there would be no water in the pipes so that the pipes wouldn't freeze, they wouldn't break, uh, explode over the, over the week. But then would come Friday night and you have to start thinking about heat for Sunday. And so then he'd, he'd tighten the system down, he'd fill it up with water and, and he would get the boiler going and it would start heating. But the problem is that the, the system had a leak in it somewhere. And uh, so every three hours he would have to come back over and add more water. Now think about that, starting Friday night Every three hours, just do that math in your, in your mind, until Sunday morning, he would come over to the church and fill the system with water. And you know what? I thought about the amount of work and time and energy, and I, I don't think I could do it one weekend, let alone every weekend of the long Wisconsin winter. He would do that, and he did it with joy. He was so happy to do that. I'm like, Dwayne, are you okay? <laughs> he had this big smile on his face, yeah. But then, you know what really surprised me is this was actually in the summer. I mean, it's the most surprising thing about Dwayne is we, we wanted to start a church softball team. You know, we, did, we had that in Wisconsin. We'd play softball with each other with other churches. And so we, we were a small church, so we didn't have enough to have a whole team. And so we needed, we were one person short. And do you know, 78-year-old Dwayne volunteered to serve on the church softball team. And we were all surprised. Not because he was such a good softball player. In fact, I think if he were 28, he probably wouldn't have been much better. <laughs> but he was willing to, to show up in the most amazing ways, and he loved it. He was, it was amazing. You know what? Our team actually won the softball tournament that year. I couldn't believe it. Because when God is at work, you are always on the winning team. I believe that. The book of Acts shows us a picture of joy for those who serve, both servers of the word and servers of the table. We don't know a lot about all the men that were selected in this passage who were chosen to wait on the tables, and, but we do know a little bit. And if you think that these guys were just kind of quiet, behind the scenes type of people, then you're wrong. Because at least two of them Came on, became powerful spokesmen for the Christian faith. Stephen, for example, we're going to read about him next week, full of grace and power, performing great miracles and signs among the people. And then Philip became a great evangelist, teaching, leading the church in its first great mission outside of Jerusalem. I mean, these men weren't limited to setting up chairs and making coffee. They found incredible joy in energy and life. And so, this morning... I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you in the right way. Are you willing to serve Jesus? Now, there are many different ways to do that. Um, and there, it doesn't all have to be in the context of a church community, but an important part of it is in the context of a church community. And, and you know that, that in this church, our church, a new church, there are lots of opportunities. <laughs> Uh, if this is your church, if this is where you worship, if this is the church you claim, then find a way to serve here in this church. I mean, we are a growing church with a new building, and so we need people who are good at welcoming others. We need folks who can clean up. We need folks who are good at hospitality. We need folks who can start new ministries, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, and Pastor Gary could join me, too. We, we could be here all morning with our ideas. But it's all so important 
It's important in the kingdom of God and it's important to you. Serving is a vital part of your Christian life. When you serve Jesus, you will find that ministry is an awesome joy that gives you energy. And instead of exhausting you, it empowers you. Instead of burnout, you experience blessing. You will say it is a privilege, it is a joy to serve Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are in the business of inviting us to join you in mission and ministry, even here, even in this church, even in this moment. Lord, help us to, to take a, a, a risk, to, to be bold and saying, I want to do this, or I feel called to do this, or let me help with this, so that we too, every one of us, can know the joy of serving you. Lord, thank you for the privilege and joy of calling us, of giving us an opportunity to be with you in this great adventure, this great joy of serving you as you have served us. We thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.